Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Rodak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our prostate cancer series, but this time diving into some of the medical oncology portion, this time talking about systemic therapy for non-metastatic prostate cancer. And we've got a great episode planned, a lot of information, and also a peek behind the curtain about what happens to patients with prostate cancer before they ever get to the office of a medical oncologist. Yeah, I'm excited for this episode. You know, we have our guest episodes with some surgeon and radiation oncologist, but this episode is really to put that all together. And for those who didn't want to listen to those episodes, we'll refer back to them and provide you the details you need to know when we have a patient who may have had radiation therapy and comes to your clinic or had a prostatectomy and you're trying to figure out what to do for them. Prostate really is one of those tricky tumors that a lot of it happens outside of the MedOnc office. And so I'm glad that we're going to get to integrate some of that today. Likewise, guys. Well, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to another episode. So, guys, I'm curious. What was your favorite thing that you had over Thanksgiving? What was the favorite thing that you ate that you're still thinking about a couple weeks after? It's going to be tough to choose. I think it was probably the stuffing or dressing, I guess. We didn't stuff it into the bird. I used the simple as best stuffing. I think it's a Bon Appetit or a Curious Recipe. Really good. Just hits all the notes you want. A lot of herbs, some savoriness from some chicken broth, the bread. It's a classic. I'd have to say my favorite thing was the turkey. So I, I made our turkey this year. I actually went to my brother's house and kind of cooked Thanksgiving dinner, which was a lot of fun. Dan, I'm sure you'd be proud of me. And I felt really good about the turkey. You know, it wasn't dried out. I made a good garlic herb butter that I had rubbed all over the turkey and had a nice brown texture. It worked out perfectly. I felt really good about it. I did not do much cooking this Thanksgiving. I was at my aunt and uncle's house. We had several turkeys and also two smoked chickens as well, which were all absolutely delicious. You have to do that when there's about 40 people at Thanksgiving dinner. So, But actually, we had Thanksgiving parts one, two, and three. And I will say on the third day, my aunt made crab legs and she made them in this gravy and it was just out of this world. It's been years since I've had that. So I think I'm still thinking about those. I'm not going to lie. And I hopefully, I'm sorry to leave you all hungry after that conversation and that little opener, but guys, hopefully you're also hungry to learn about prostate cancer. Ronak, that was lame. That was terrible. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so Vivek, in traditional fashion, do you want to kick us off with a case just to start out on our conversation, this time focusing on non-metastatic prostate cancer? So we have a 65-year-old male who presented to his PCP with worsening urinary frequency. He had a reported family history of prostate cancer from his uncle. PSA was obtained and elevated at 22. He was referred to urology, who performed a biopsy, which showed prostate adenocarcinoma, Gleason 4 plus 3 equals 7, and 5 out of 12 cores. He then moved to our area and was referred to us for further evaluation while awaiting urology scheduling. So he was not really lost to follow-up, just, but just moved. From a medical oncology perspective, what are we going to consider and do for this patient? 
Well, as we'd referenced in our intro, you know, local therapies for prostate cancer are usually handled by urology and refer to our episode with our surgeon to discuss some of those details, what happens there. But as far as medical oncology, we do still need to know the principles behind initial risk stratification and staging, which we discussed in our introductory episode. So you'll always ask yourself three questions, remember, for localized prostate cancer. What's the PSA number? What is the extent of the disease? So thinking about extra prostatic extension or pelvic lymph node involvement. And what is the Gleason pattern? Those two numbers. And there are several risk groups that this will stratify people into, including very low, low, favorable intermediate, unfavorable intermediate, high and very high. At this point, you almost just wish they would go with numbers instead of these descriptors. And I generally will just look this up. It's a lot for me to keep all in my head as somebody who doesn't solely focus on GU oncology. But let's talk a little bit about features for the higher, very high risk subgroups. The PSA level really matters. And a PSA greater than 20, as is the case for this gentleman, is a high risk feature. Extra prostatic extension or pelvic node involvement, as you might imagine, also high risk features. And combined Gleason score of eight is high risk. And combined Gleason score of nine or 10 is very high risk. And so just remember that the Gleason score, it's a grading pattern on a scale of one through five, one being normal prostate, five being very dysplastic, and 12 cores are taken. And the report, kind of the Gleason score, it's a number, but it's broken down into an X plus Y. So uh, two numbers added together to come up with a combined Gleason score. The first number is the predominant grade. That's what there's most of around. And the second number is the next most common grade. So in this way, a five plus four is going to be higher risk than a four plus five, just because there's more of the higher grade stuff around. Any patients with these risk factors, with these high risk or very high risk features, are going to need staging imaging. Historically, that was a CT and a bone scan. Thinking about prostate cancer, if it's going to go somewhere, it typically will go to the bones. But currently, we have a new technology around, and that is this PSMA PET-CT. And it is basically a technology that we'll talk about in a little bit more later on this episode, but it's pretty cool. And it's a PET modality that is able to target prostate cancer tissue specifically. So we're now using that for initial staging imaging for most patients to rule out metastatic disease. And this technology can also kind of highlight any involved pelvic nodes prior to something like surgery or external beam radiotherapy, EBRT. I do want to say there's an Another group of patients that will need this imaging, that's the unfavorable intermediate risk. So again, always splitting hairs in medical oncology. And again, you can look this up. This will be in the NCCN guidelines, and we'll also have this linked in our show notes and described there. And finally, the last thing I want to say is that it is valuable to identify patients that are very high risk because it has implications for treatment. These patients are going to benefit from adjuvant, adiraterone, and PRED, and we'll get to that a little later on. Dan, those were such important reminders. So thank you for sort of reminding us and our listeners about what we talked about in our first few episodes and highlighting some of the conversations that we've been having with some of our experts in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, I think the big takeaway from all of this is that there's a lot of nuances here and we should look this up along the way. But being familiar with what are some of these high risk features are kind of in mind helps us triage patients more quickly. So I want to focus on your mention of the PSMA PET-CT. This is something and a modality that we haven't discussed on our show previously. And I've noticed that there's a lot of different PET tracers like gallium-68 PSMA and F18-flucyclovine. 
But what exactly is a PSMA PET CT, and how should we make sense of all these different tracers? So there are five FDA-approved tracers for PET imaging and prostate cancer. But really just remember that PSMA PET these days is the gold standard. PSMA stands for prostate-specific membrane antigen, and there's a higher density of PSMA receptors on prostate cancer cells even compared to normal prostate. So that really does make it a really valuable target and kind of an ideal tracer. The PSMA PET modality has a higher sensitivity and specificity for both bone and soft tissue lesions compared to the other tracers that are out there. And there's a study that actually looked at the impact of this gallium-68 PSMA PET on radiation planning. It looked at 45 patients who had mostly either high-risk or very high-risk disease and who had PSMA PET prior to therapy. And the initial treatment ended up changing about 53% of those patients. So a majority of folks who got this scan, it had an impact on what ended up happening to them. Many of these patients were found to have pelvic node involvement or overt metastatic bone disease despite prior negative imaging with conventional modalities. Um, we'll have a link to that study in our show notes. It's a pretty cool thing. But suffice to say, this Gallium 68 PSMA PET, it's the way to go. It really is our best currently available technology for looking for this metastatic disease. And remember, it's going to have the same limitations as other PET modalities. So you're not going to be able to see micrometastatic disease or anything like that. You know, you're still limited by the spatial resolution of PET, but it's a cool thing that we have. I think that's the critical point for our listeners to understand for these patients. So we talked about how PET-CT upstaged many patients when we talked about large cell lymphoma compared to conventional CT. And PSMA PET-CT is the same concept for patients with localized prostate cancer. It's also important to utilize in later lines of the advanced setting, given the approval of lutetium PSMA therapy that we previously had talked about in our pharmacology episode. And we'll certainly get back to that at a later time. Let's go back to our case. So Vivek, do you want to sort of fill us in on what happened with our gentleman? So he got a PSMA PET scan, which confirmed that he had localized disease. And keep in mind that gallium PSMA is one of two PSMA PET approved modalities. So just check with your local center to see what you have and know that we still don't know if this is going to change our overall survival, that we are picking up disease earlier. We're likely preventing toxicity from things like radiation therapy for those who do have overt metastatic disease. But time will tell whether this is going to actually change overall survival. He ended up proceeding with a radical prostatectomy and achieved an undetectable PSA after surgery. He was lost to follow-up with urology, and he had a subsequent PSA relapse at 1.2, so his level was 1.2, two years later on routine labs from his primary care provider. So then he's referred back to medical oncology by his primary care. So one of you guys, can you fill our listeners in on what we should do for any PSA rise after surgery? In my opinion, I think that we should always be referring these patients to radiation oncology for salvage radiation, and this is so key in these patients. And it's also reasonable to obtain imaging and essentially get repeat imaging, ideally with that PSMA PET that we talked about, to rule out metastatic disease. And this can be done earlier and earlier just to sort of expedite the care, because this is going to have implications on how we approach this patient next. Yeah, and I think that's that's pretty critical. So for post-surgery, we expect no PSA. Any PSA rise means that we need to think about salvage radiation therapy. So this patient proceeded with external beam radiotherapy, EBRT. His post-radiation PSA nadir occurred three months after therapy at 0.2 nanograms per milliliter. 
Two years later, he had a subsequent PSA rise to four and is back in clinic given concern for metastatic disease. Can you guys recap how we define PSA relapse after radiation therapy and tell our listeners about the AstroPhoenix guidelines? So yeah, these AstroPhoenix guidelines, we talked about them briefly in our radiation oncology episode, but unlike surgery where we expect no PSA postoperatively, and basically any rise is recurrence, right? Because the goal is if you had a radical prostatectomy, you've got all that tissue out. So there shouldn't be anything left producing PSA. After radiation, we look at the PSA nadir, which usually occurs three to six months after therapy. And because we know that we're not going to get people to zero after radiation, we use that nadir as our reference point. And recurrence is defined as a rise of two nanograms per milliliter above that nadir. And it should be confirmed on repeat testing because remember, there's a lot of stuff that can transiently elevate or, or mess with the PSA. After that, we always proceed with PSMA PET imaging, if available, or if not, conventional CT and bone scan. Because we're looking to see if these patients have just a biochemical recurrence, basically just the number rising, or if there's actual detectable metastatic disease on one of these scans. The other two kind of key points is that we classify patients as castration sensitive or resistant by measuring their testosterone level at this point. If they were already on ADT, on androgen deprivation therapy, when they had their their recurrence uh, by PSA. And we also always want to calculate the PSA doubling time. That's going to be relevant for folks who don't have any metastatic disease imaging. There's some implications for for treatment. I'm not going to lie. I was really confused about the words castrate sensitive, castrate resistant. Every time I saw it in clinic in my first year, I had to look these up because I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And I realized now though, it's actually quite simple. So essentially we check a testosterone level and castration levels are defined as testosterone values less than 50. So if a patient's PSA is rising and the patient has a testosterone less than 50, then we deem them castrate resistance, for example. So I think, Vivek, you had mentioned when we were talking about this case in preparation for this episode that our patient ended up getting imaging and he had no evidence of metastatic disease. Thank goodness. But he had castrate sensitive disease based on his testosterone. And we define these patients as having biochemical recurrence with an M0 disease. So no signs of metastatic disease, but we see evidence of PSA that's in circulation. So that's why we say biochemical recurrence with an M0 disease. What should we do for him? And why does the PSA doubling time actually matter? Yeah, this is a great question, and I'm going to summarize two different scenarios for us. One is the castrate-sensitive setting, and the second will be the castrate-resistant setting. So first, let's start off with the castration-sensitive setting, where we have a biochemical recurrence. The data for this is really based on older data, and the foundation was actually published in 2002. And this came from an older study. There's limitations in the modern era given improved therapies in the metastatic setting, but it does give us insight into the prognostic role of the PSA doubling time, maybe less insight on overall survival. It included 380 patients who were treated with radiation therapy at a single center. And what they did is they looked at the association of PSA kinetics over time with both prostate cancer-specific survival and all-cause mortality. Again, this is in castrate-sensitive patients only. When they looked at it, they found that the 
shorter PSA doubling was associated with worse overall survival. It kind of makes sense, right? If you've got more burden of your prostate cancer secreting this PSA, the patients would do worse. And really what they found was they categorized patients to PSA doubling time less than two years and then arbitrarily chose another category of less than 12 months. And there was more of a difference for those shorter PSA doubling times at less than 12 months. The prostate cancer-specific death was five times higher for a PSA doubling time less than 12 months versus greater than 12 months. So that's how the cutoff came for castrate-sensitive disease. It's partially arbitrary. You can actually look at something called the PSA velocity, which actually looks at the rate of change over time. That's not just how quickly it doubles. And that had a little bit more of a correlation. But again, less than a year, PSA doubling time and castrate-sensitive, that's what we define as high risk. For castrate-resistant patients, now let's take a different patient. Again, don't have metastatic disease, but this time, let's say they had a testosterone less than 50. How do we think about the PSA doubling time in those patients? This was actually very interesting the way they did this. There was previously a randomized trial, phase three trial in the early 2000s, that looked at the use of the bone agent zoldrionic acid, that bisphosphonate, compared to placebo for patients with M0 castrate-resistant prostate cancer with a biochemical recurrence. So no overt disease. Their testosterone was low at castrate levels. And the idea was, does a bisphosphonate prevent bone metastasis? That was the idea of the study. It was actually terminated early because there's virtually very, very, very few events in both the control arm and the comparator arm. But what they had was 200 patients in the control arm who were just essentially observed where they could look at, well, how does the PSA doubling time influence the time to bone metastasis for these castrate-resistant patients. And what they found was a baseline PSA greater than 10 mattered. So a high baseline PSA mattered and was significantly associated with developing metastatic disease. And PSA doubling time also mattered. What was interesting, they just took the median of the cohort, which is about 10 months, and that's how we got that number. The median of that cohort from a trial done in the early 2000s was 10 months, and we knew PSA doubling time was associated with bone mets. So it was sort of arbitrary that that cutoff was chosen and was used as a standard cutoff point moving forward in guidelines and in subsequent patients. Yes, we know it's associated with development of metastatic disease. But it's really not well validated as a surrogate marker for thinking about symptomatic bone progression. So those are the numbers to remember. Less than 12 months for castrate-sensitive biochemical recurrence and less than 10 months for castrate-resistant. And you can see here how these are older studies. You can see the limitations in using exact cutoffs. You should always individualize this to the patient. So I feel like this happens not infrequently in medicine where essentially we have to just assign cutoff values. And in many cases, the data aren't perfect, but for our purposes, they are still very informative and they're quite practical. So the key thing to take away then is that PSA doubling time of less than 10 months holds clinical importance, especially in our patient. And you had mentioned that his PSA doubling time was about six months. So what would you recommend then as treatment options for this patient? If this were the castrate-sensitive setting, then we would say that ADT monotherapy is the way to go for the castrate-sensitive setting like our patient had here. And really, one of the trials that looked at that was a phase three trial called the Iceland study. And what they did was they kind of said, hey, if we're giving all these patients ADT, do we have to give it continuously? Or can we just give it for six months, get rid of their PSA, and then 
stop it and add it back if their PSA comes back up. And it was called continuous ADT versus intermittent ADT for these patients with castrate-sensitive disease. It was a non-inferiority trial. And really, they found that there's actually no difference in efficacy outcomes. And overall, the patients surprisingly didn't have any change in quality of life either. So it's an option. It might be more cost-effective. And in the castrate-sensitive disease, regardless, you're going to give them ADT. The question is continuous versus intermittent. In that Iceland phase three trial where they tested this for that patient group, it was still unclear which route you should go with because the patients included were very heterogeneous. There were some higher-risk patients with high Gleason scores at baseline and some lower-risk patients with even Gleason's less than six at baseline. So you had a heterogeneous grouping of patients. So a lot of people will say, well, you have a high-risk patient. Do you really want to risk that intermittent ADT strategy? But you know, based on that trial, that if you've got a patient that has trouble tolerating ADT with something like Lupron, you can hold therapy and that's okay. Intermittent strategy is very, very reasonable as long as you continue to monitor the patients. But let's pretend our patient actually had castrate-resistant disease. And remember, for that one, PSA doubling time, we're still less than 10 months. We're still in this high-risk category. What are the options for those patients? So there are three androgen receptor antagonists approved in the M0 castrate-resistant setting with a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months, so the situation that we're facing in our case. And there are three phase three randomized controlled trials comparing each agent plus ADT versus ADT alone. And so the Spartan trial looked at apalutamide, the Aramis trial looked at darolutamide, and the Prosper trial looked at enzalutamide. And all three agents ended up showing a clear improvement in medium time to metastasis by about 20 months. But there were some important caveats with how these trials were designed and sort of the conclusions we can draw from them. Uh, Vivek, could you talk a little bit about that? I think the key things to know about these trials is we knew that all three of these drugs worked when a patient had metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer and had progressed on ADT alone. So we knew that. So we knew patients who progress on ADT have overt metastatic disease. They should be getting one of these agents, whether it's apalutamide, whether it's darolutamide, whether it's enzalutamide. So when we march things up earlier in clinical trials, our question should be, does giving it earlier change our overall trajectory of disease compared to giving it later? So what that requires is that the control arm in all these trials, comparing, let's say, ADT plus apalutamide versus ADT alone, the ADT alone arm, when they progress, they need to get standard of care, which would be one of these agents, whether it's apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide. And that's how you'll actually know if giving it early matters, because these therapies are very expensive, these therapies come with their own side effects, and we have the risk of over-treating a large number of patients. So when we look at that, and we look at these patients, in two of the trials, so for darolutamide and the other trial for enzalutamide, only about 25% of patients got therapy at progression that was appropriate, meaning that 75% of patients didn't get standard of care therapy with apalutamide or enzalutamide or darolutamide at progression. So if you think about that, well, if you look at something like overall survival, of course they're going to be different, right? That arm, the control arm was essentially penalized and they shouldn't have been penalized and it wasn't the appropriate care to give to those patients. Then you might say, well, okay, that's fine and all, but ultimately their metastasis-free survival improved. Shouldn't that be what we care about? And the answer to that is, well, you could have 
radiographic progression of disease that's asymptomatic and remains indolent for several years. If we scan more, we'll find more things, but what was that actually going to affect the overall trajectory of the disease or lead to something like a symptomatic disease progression? And in those trials, when we looked at time to symptomatic disease progression, much fewer patients had symptomatic disease progression. You still had about a 10% improvement. But again, if you had symptomatic disease progression and you gave the drug later, would that have changed the overall trajectory of the disease? So we don't answer the question. If we give it earlier, we know we're over-treating patients. There's no doubt about it. And the question is, does that offset how many patients we're helping? And the only way to know that is if all of the control patients got appropriate post-protocol care, which didn't happen in these trials. So it is standard of care. Future studies really need to answer that question. And we also need to think about the economic impact of keeping people in definite therapy for a pill that might be ten dollars to $12,000 a month. That's so important. And we've already highlighted in our previous episodes not only in this series, but others about quality of life and all the other things that we need to be conscious of, especially in these patients that are going to have disease for long periods of time, people living with disease for long periods of time, as we see with prostate cancer. So guys, we've definitely covered a lot of information already today for this M0 prostate cancer population. But let's circle back on that very high risk patient that we mentioned at the start of the episode. So let's say we had a 63-year-old patient with newly diagnosed prostate cancer. Let's say his PSA was elevated at 41 and his glycerin pattern was 4 plus 4. We already now know that he has these very high-risk features. And so we went ahead and ordered a PSMA PET-CT that showed pelvic node involvement. And so all this information allows us to say that he likely has very high-risk disease and has planned uh, external beam radiation therapy, EBRT. So in this patient population, we sort of alluded to this before, but how do we start thinking about adjuvant therapy for this gentleman? So the short answer is abiraterone and prednisone for two years in addition to ADT. That's what we're going to end up doing. Taking a step back, in order to qualify for that type of adjuvant therapy, patients would need two of the following three criteria. So a PSA greater than 40, extra prostatic extension, or combined Gleason score of eight or higher. And so this patient, basically, we know he has the PSA, he's got the combined Gleason score. And so we've met those criteria. And we kind of got this combination or this plan from a trial that we'll discuss again in the metastatic setting called the STAMPEDE trial. And unlike so many of the acronyms, this one actually did stand mostly for what it spells, Systemic Therapy Advancing Metastatic Prostate Cancer Evaluation of Drug Efficacy. So the STAMPEDE trial. And it's really important to understand the basic design of this trial. It was a multi-arm, multi-stage platform trial. And that basically means there's one standard of care arm that continuously has patients randomized, and the rest of the patients are randomized to different arms of the trial at different stages. Arm A, standard of care, and continuously randomized people to that. Arm B was standard of care plus docetaxel. So remember, taxane chemotherapy. So just for example, now this is not exactly how things were constructed here, but this is sort of the general scheme for this type of trial design. Let's say that arm A is standard of care, arm B is standard of care plus docetaxel, arm C, standard of care plus abiraterone prednisone, arm D, standard of care plus abiraterone prednisone and zalutamide. And so it's basically 
you have the option of introducing a lot of different combinations of therapy, and it allows each individual arm to be compared to that master control arm, but not necessarily to each other. Uh, so it's just a, it's a cool way to randomize patients to multiple arms without starting 20 different trials. So the Stampede trial overall, it included very high risk M0 and M1 patients. And for the sake of this discussion, we're going to focus on just a couple of the arms of the trial for these high-risk M0 patients undergoing standard of care radiation therapy. The control arm got external beam radiation, EBRT, and ADT, something like Luprolid, which was standard of care. And then one comparator arm got EBRT plus ADT plus Abipred. And another comparator got EBRT plus ADT plus Abipred and Zalutamide. And so for the sake of the analysis, we consider these essentially two separate clinical trials of two different regimens, both compared just to the same control arm. And part of the reason we can do this is because, like we'd said, the control arm is continuously randomized. So as the whole length of this trial was running, people were constantly getting randomized to that control arm. And then the Abipred enrollment was between 2011 and 2014, and the Abipred plus enzalutamide plus standard of care was enrolled from 2014 to 2016. And it is important to note that the control arms, while the main control arm was being continuously randomized, the folks who were enrolled concurrently in a trial arm were compared to those in who were randomized to the control arm concurrently. So although it's all the same trial, there were basically just successive randomizations for both. And I think the key thing with that is that when this trial started, there were many different arms that were randomized at the same time. As the trial went on over the years, arms were added to this design. And so these two arms happened to be enrolling at different times. There are some comparisons where both comparator arms are enrolling in the same years, and they're both comparing to the same control arm. In this case, you had essentially two different time periods of enrollment, one to just abipred and the other one to abipred plus enzalutamide in addition to standard of care compared to the control arm, which was standard of care, essentially just ADT. And that's why in this analysis, it was really an analysis combining two different trial analyses, right? You weren't comparing everything to the same control arm. You essentially had two different control arms. So it was really done in a meta-analysis approach. And the primary endpoint here was metastasis-free survival and not overall survival or quality of life measures. And uh, what found was that the six-year metastasis-free survival improved from 70% to 80% or thereabouts. So about a 10% absolute improvement when comparing the control arm to the group of patients with the addition of abipred plus or minus enzalutamide. There was a significant difference in, in overall survival, which was looked at as a, a secondary endpoint with a hazard ratio of 0.6, and that led to this becoming the standard of care for patients. When looking at a tester interaction to see if enzalutamide added any incremental benefits to the abipred alone, it was not significant. There was not a significant increase in benefit, but it did lead to increased toxicity. So that's the reason why, even though the original meta-analysis combination was looking at Abipred plus minus enzalutamide, we just do Abipred as our standard of care now. There are also a few key limitations. Uh, Vivek, would you be able to, to talk about that? Yeah, and, and I'll briefly summarize the key limitations here. One, the primary endpoint was metastasis-free survival, and we had a 10% improvement. Okay, so that's great. The number needed to treat to prevent one metastasis is 10 patients. That's pretty good. 
right? That's pretty good when we're thinking about adding abipred to these patients. The question, like in the prior trials we talked about, looking at the addition of apalutamide in the biochemical recurrence M0 setting, we have the same problem here. What are the patients in the control arm getting at progression? How many of them are getting abipred at progression? In the ideal situation, all of them would be getting abipred at progression, right? We have trials that look at patients with very high-risk prostate cancer who become metastatic, cash rate-resistant, and they get abipred. When we look at this trial, we don't have those results. So we have no idea if the control arm just had inappropriate post-protocol care. That would be the ideal question to know. So are we improving the fact that patients are not getting metastatic disease? Absolutely. We don't know the answer. Is this truly improving overall survival because of that limitation? All that being said, a number needed to treat of 10 to prevent metastatic disease is pretty good, and we're hoping that translates into a durable prostate cancer cure. We don't have to worry about additional indefinite therapy down the line. So that's why this is still a great study and a great trial and outcome. Gosh, I think that really does cover a lot of ground in these patients within the non-metastatic setting with their prostate cancer. Guys, I think certainly we went through a lot of information in a lot of detail. And listeners, as always, we will put all this information in our show notes for you to go back and review and highly recommend listening back to the episode if you didn't catch it all the first time. But I think at least what I'm going to take away from this awesome discussion is the important reminders that Dan, you reminded us of in the beginning, which are paying attention to things like the PSA number, the disease extent, what the Gleason pattern truly is, because this is the information that we need that will truly help us determine what category of disease our patients are put into. And then you can always look up these guidelines on something like NCCN to help further stratify and decide exactly what we're going to do. I think the other important thing that we highlighted today is just the understanding, the fundamental understanding of differences in terminology like castrate sensitive versus castrate resistant and appreciating that there are differences in how we approach patients based on this categorization. So essentially, there's a lot of vocabulary when it comes to prostate cancer, but taking a second to understand and appreciate some of these terms will help you, I think, better be able to kind of determine how your patient fits into the treatment schema should this problem ever arise and a patient like this ever come to your clinic. So I think, guys, if if you're you're okay with it. I think that we stop here. And then in our next episode, we continue this conversation, maybe in the metastatic setting. Yeah, I totally agree. And we'll distill all of this in our show notes with a summary at the end for everybody to have an algorithm to follow for these patients. We wanted to give you key insights into these trials and limitations and the way that they were designed. Awesome. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow On Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.